Carboniferous geological period occupied space between the Devonian and Permian periods. The Devonian ended 358.9 million years ago, and the Permian began 298.9 million years ago. So the heuristic to use when thinking about the Carboniferous is a period of time, about 60 million years in duration, that took place around 300 million years ago. The Carboniferous period was defined, in large part, by the terrestrial life that existed for those 60 million years or so. There were a large number of amphibians wandering around, the ancestors of what would later become amniotes, the reptile, bird, and mammalian families that we know today, and also a large number of arthropods, which were bugs and crustaceans and the like, creatures with exoskeletons, and ones that were much bigger than the ants and scorpions and lobsters we exist alongside today. Part of the reason that the dragonflies, cockroaches, millipedes, and amphibians of the Carboniferous were so big was that the planet was covered in a huge fern forest, which caused the oxygen level in the air to rise up to its highest in history, 35%. Today, by comparison, the oxygen level of the air we breathe is about 21%. Higher oxygen levels lead to bigger beasties, and so the animals grew as the forests grew all the way until about 305 million years ago, when these continent-spanning forests began to die off, a result of perhaps a shift in the climate that led to a new ice age, reduced oceanic levels, and a more arid climate, perhaps a series of volcanic eruptions that hit around the same time as the collapse of these forest systems, and perhaps a confluence of multiple events, charmingly referred to as a murder-on-the-Orient-Express scenario, meaning that multiple causes led to the collapse, as any single one of them wouldn't have been sufficient to cause such a catastrophe. Whatever the cause, during the latter part of the Carboniferous period, these forests died off en masse, creating a new geologic layer, meaning, if you dig down far enough, you find a fairly consistent band of dead Carboniferous forests that cover whole continents, though in some places more than others. This is especially true of North America and Europe, which were, back in the Carboniferous, part of the same continental landmass called Euramerica. This was the primary location of the massive forests which partially defined this period, and in the following period, Euramerica went on to join Gondwana as part of Laurasia to make the supercontinent Pangaea. Trees grow and sustain themselves by sucking up carbon dioxide from the air and using it as part of a chemical reaction, which in its absolute simplest form converts six molecules of carbon dioxide plus six molecules of water, H2O, into C6H12O6, which is glucose, plus 6O2, which is six molecules of oxygen. So the sunlight acts as a catalyst, powering this conversion of carbon dioxide into sugar, which is food for the tree but also a component of more complex sugars like cellulose and lignocellulose, which makes up wood, leaves, etc., plus a waste product of oxygen, which they don't need, but which allowed all that other stuff around them to use it for, you know, breathing and cell development and such. It's important to remember that these sugars, these celluloses, are partly made up of carbon. Pretty much everything is. Life as we know it 
consists of carbon-based life forms. So when the Carboniferous forest collapse occurred, all these trees and all their carbon died off and over time was covered by rocks and soils and other bits of earth. When these trees and other sources of green plant-based life, like peat bogs and swamps, were compressed over time, their energy, that carbon they sucked up and refined, was compressed into bits of highly energy-packed molecular structures. The pressure from all that earth, all that weight pressing on it for millions of years, made it ultra-dense and ultra-refined. That's a lot of photosynthetic energy packed into those cells, remember. And now all those cells, continent-spanning forests worth, were compressed into tiny black nuggets of energy. There's evidence of the Chinese using coal as a source of energy as far back as 400 BCE. Marco Polo described coal as black stones which burn like logs. Bronze Age British used coal as a component of their funeral pyres, and the Romans used coal to smelt iron ore. Later uses of coal led to increasingly efficient steam engines, as each pound of coal held far more energy than each pound of wood when burned. And the same general principles of recapturing this energy from coal, combusting it to heat the air, which, via an electrical generator, converts chemical energy into mechanical energy, still holds true today in modern coal power plants. And that's what I want to talk about today. Not the Carboniferous period or tree chemistry, but coal power, its persistence, and its place in the modern world. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. Let's Know Things is a listener-supported show. Go to letsknowthings.com and click on the Contribute page. You'll find an array of different ways that you can help support the show. You can share it with a friend. You can review it on iTunes. You can contribute directly monetarily through PayPal or Venmo. Any and all efforts in this regard are very much appreciated. A huge thanks to everyone who has contributed in some way already, and thank you in advance if you're considering doing so in the future. Another great way to help support the show is to check out our sponsors. Audible is the world's largest depository of amazing audiobooks. If you enjoy podcasts, chances are you will also enjoy audiobooks. And if you go to audibletrial.com LKT, you will receive a free month of Audible and a free audiobook of your choice from their massive collection. That's audibletrial.com LKT. And HostGator is the hosting company that I have used very happily for many, many years. If you go to HostGator.com LKT, you will receive a discount that they provide to listeners of Let's Know Things. HostGator.com LKT. All right, let's get back to the show. The article that I want to unspool today comes from the Washington Post, and it's entitled, The Entire Coal Industry Employs Fewer People Than Arby's. And it's a pretty compelling title right off the bat, but some data, some numbers that are contained within that article include the following. The coal industry employs 76,572 people as of 2014 which is the most real data rather than assumed and predicted data that is available. So just under 77,000 people as of 2014, 
work in the coal industry, and that is all employees in that field, not just coal miners. This includes office workers and sales staff and managers and so on. Now, for comparison, Walmart provides 28 times as many jobs as coal. That's 2.2 million employees. Travel agencies employ 99,888 people, so almost 100,000 people in travel agencies compared to 77,000 in the coal industry. Used car dealerships employ 138,000. Theme parks employ 144,000. The car wash industry employs 150,000 people. Casinos, museums, breweries, wineries, these all employ more people than the coal industry. The yoga industry, as of that same year, 2014, employs 279,100 people. And that's compared to 77,000 in the coal industry. It's 3.5 times as many people in the yoga industry as the coal industry. And the companies that are about equivalent to coal is one, Arby's, which was mentioned in the title of the article. It has about 4,000 more employees than coal. And Whole Foods has about 4,000 less than coal. So that's about the realm of employment that we're looking at here. And the new numbers from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, these are the predictive numbers. These are the ones that we don't know for certain quite yet, actually drop the number of coal mining jobs in the U.S. to just over 50,000. 50,300 coal mining jobs in the U.S. as of February 2017. That's the That's a hugely steep decline, and one that puts coal mining lower than the number of florists in the country. The number of all people working in the coal industry may today be less than the total number of florists in the United States. And so in terms of utility, those are not terribly useful numbers. They're interesting, I think, in a way, particularly because coal is so influential despite the fact that it's such a relatively small industry. But a more direct comparison might be a comparison to another power-based industry. And the solar industry in the United States employs 374,000 people compared to 77,000. That's almost 300,000 more people than the coal industry. And that's based on the 2014 numbers. So it's actually far more than that in terms of percentage if we go by those 2017 predicted numbers. Now, this isn't to say that all of these jobs are equivalent jobs. Work in the coal industry tends to pay a bit more than your typical cashier job at Arby's. But the comparisons, I think, are still worthwhile, in part because of what coal has come to represent, and in part because of how coal seems to have an immensely outsized influence on government policy, despite its relatively meager size. So what I want to do is put this story into context by asking some guiding questions. And the first is this. Why is this a story? Why is this being reported on to begin with? Part of why this is notable right now in particular is that as of the day I'm recording this episode at least, Coal and coal power and the coal industry is a big part of government policy conversation. It played a role in President Trump's election stump talk, and it's now being brought up for many of the same reasons, because coal mining is a nostalgic 
traditional feeling type of career. It is integrally connected to manufacturing and refining, which are very traditional types of jobs, physical labor types of jobs. Coal towns, while not big or economically influential, can swing electoral votes in key areas, particularly because they tend to vote as blocks. Coal workers are prototypical blue-collar workers, and therefore they're quite representative of something bigger beyond just the coal industry, especially in terms of their political utility. And on that same note, Trump is trying hard to keep his base rallied. After a complicated first several months in office, he's been struggling to keep his campaign promises and doing something, anything, about coal power's decline would be one way that he could put a stake in the ground and say, okay, look, I've done something that I said I would do. There's also a good reason to believe that the coal lobby's tendrils reach Trump and his people, in part because they've reached a lot of politicians, and they saw the writing on the wall when Obama was in office. Obama's policies hadn't gone into effect yet, so they weren't yet feeling the full pinch of what was bound to come in later years. And those have still not gone into effect, by the way. But they were already preparing for the transition to a post-coal United States, and they were seeing the government-funded groups moving into their coal towns to help the locals there make that transition away from coal. Now that same writing on the wall seems to be in their favor, as the president is saying that he's going to put coal miners back to work. So how realistic is that promise to put coal miners back to work? And implicitly as part of that statement to bring the coal industry back to its former glory. It's not super realistic, quite frankly. Coal has been in decline for a while. In 2002, there were 633 coal plants operating in the U.S., and by 2011, nine years later, that number had decreased to 589. Some people believe that policies favoring renewable energy sources is to blame for this shift, but actually the real perpetrator here is natural gas, which surpassed coal in terms of U.S. energy generation for the first time in 2016, producing 33% of U.S. electricity, while coal only accounted for 32. Also in 2016, nuclear power accounted for 19% of all energy. Non-hydroelectric renewables produced 8%. Hydroelectric generated 6%. And all others combined made up about 1% of all energy produced in the U.S. Though it's estimated to be a little less in the latter months, in the first half of 2016, all renewables, including hydro, wind, solar, biomass, and geothermal, brought in a total of 16.9% of electricity generated in the country. It's not natural gas numbers, but it's much better than the 13.7% it brought in during 2015, just a year before. So coal has been in decline for at least a decade, and though the Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA's actions, certainly didn't help coal's prospects in the future. The EPA also wasn't why coal was bleeding. Those wounds were inflicted by other methods outperforming coal in the free market, and doing so while also bringing about fewer economic costs and other downsides. And those downsides are a major part of coal's issues, current and future. Yes, coal is relatively abundant in the U.S. and elsewhere, 
And yes, coal is relatively cheap to mine and easy to transport, and it is technologically simplistic to burn for energy. It's a very simple machine required to produce energy from coal. But these upsides are outshone in the eyes of many by the downsides, which include the destruction of ecosystems around these power plants, the emission of a massive quantity of greenhouse gases. They unload 1,364,000,000 metric tons of CO2 in the atmosphere every year, which is 71% of all power-generated emissions in the U.S. There's also its tendency to spout other chemicals into the air, like mercury and lead, and the huge number of issues that arise in the localities that produce the stuff, like increased instances of cancer and acid rain and black lung. For comparison, by the way, a typical car releases 4.7 metric tons of CO2 in the air each year, and that is compared to that 1,364,000,000 metric tons that coal power plants release into the air each year. So in short, coal has issues, and some of those issues have no doubt been exacerbated by Obama's environmental policies and the resultant boom in renewable energy, but a lot of those problems were there beforehand and have gotten worse at least in part because there are simply better options on the market. So what about clean coal? This is a term that's bandied around a lot these days, particularly by the coal industry and by politicians who are supporting the coal industry? Well, the term clean coal was invented in 2008 by an advertising agency called R&R Partners. And this is the same ad agency that coined the phrase, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. So they have a pretty impressive background. They have pretty impressive accolades. And they're very good at coming up with marketing campaigns that stick. And clean coal is indeed a sticky term. It's been impressively effective at slanting the debate over coal use in the United States. Try to have a discussion about coal, and invariably, the supporting pro-coal side will bring up clean coal as their solution to competing with renewable energy and natural gas. There was a piece written about this term and the campaign behind it in the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies journal on its website. Here is an excerpt from that piece that explains better than I can who the people behind this campaign are. Quote, The campaign has been paid for by Americans for Balanced Energy Choices, which bills itself as the voice of over 150,000 community leaders from all across the country. Among those leaders, according to ABEC's website, are an environmental consultant, an interior designer, and a complementary healer. Other, arguably louder voices in the group, include the world's biggest mining company, BHP Billiton, the biggest U.S. coal mining company, Peabody Energy, the biggest publicly owned U.S. electric utility, Duke Energy, and the biggest U.S. railroad, Union Pacific, ABEC whose domain name is licensed to the Center for Energy and Economic Development, a coal industry group, merged with CEED on April 17th to form the American Coalition for Clean Coal Electricity. They're bankrolling the Clean Coal Campaign to the tune of $35 million this year alone. That's a little less than the tobacco industry spent on a successful fight against anti-smoking legislation in 1998. 
and almost triple what health insurers paid for the Harry and Louise ads that helped kill healthcare reform in the early 1990s. In addition to the ads, the Clean Coal Campaign has so far also sponsored two presidential election debates, where, critics noted, no questions about global warming got asked. End quote. So it's probably pretty clear what these people hope to gain from shopping around a term like clean coal. The unfortunate reality, though, is that the technologies they bang the drum for so effusively don't exist. Or rather, some of them have been shown to maybe be possible in theory, but they've never been installed on a single power plant. And there are no plans beyond non-binding promises to, quote, work on it. And this allows them to build their plants on those empty promises and get their government subsidies on those empty promises, but then continue to do business as usual. Now, this isn't to say that the coal industry is not trying to change the status quo. There have been efforts to improve coal plant efficiency and reduce the amount of carbon emitted by these plants. But the other efforts that are generally touted as the silver bullet solution are usually of the CCS variety, that is, carbon capture and sequestration, which basically means capturing the greenhouse gases before they are sent skyward into the atmosphere. This could conceivably work if you build brand new plants that were optimized for the technology, or it could potentially work with a retrofit that captures the pollutants after the burning. But unfortunately, this is all just theory. It's tech that is often gabbed about and promoted to get the plants built, but it's never put into action. In 2003, President George W. Bush supported a project called FutureGen, through which these technologies were meant to be funded and put into practice, showing that they actually work in real life. The price tag was $1.65 billion. The government paid $1 billion of that, almost two-thirds of the sticker price, but the project never came to fruition, and they couldn't get it to work, and it was never made manifest. They canceled the program, unsuccessful as it was, in 2015, over a decade later. The U.S. Government Office of Fossil Energy went on to say that based on these experiences and other research, they estimated that these technologies are not feasible, as they would increase the cost of new power plants by up to 80%, and reduce energy production efficiency by 20-30%. to 30%. And also, the retrofit versions haven't been shown to be feasible on large enough scales to work on power plants. One of the from-scratch-too-expensive-to-work-in-the-U.S. models of power plant was built in Canada in 2014, but it has been a mess since it was built. It doubled the price of energy in the region, and it's only been capable of operating at 40% efficiency thus far. So clean coal as an actual solution isn't really a thing. It's a buzzword created by marketers and anyone who tells you otherwise including more than a few politicians in recent years, and our current Environmental Protection Agency head are lying to you or don't know what they're talking about. But in most cases, my money is on the former. So the next question to ask is, if coal is so bad, like for the environment, but also economically, why are coal workers and coal miners so into it? They seem to be defending the industry tooth and nail. The concise answer to that question is money. We all have to pay the bills. We all have to put food on the table, pay our health care bills, and coal workers have more health care concerns than others. 
so it's pretty vital that they have insurance and enough money in the bank to cover their premiums. That's a huge part of it, but another key component to this story, I think, is a sort of tribalism that emerges within certain industries, especially those with very specific cultures around the work they do. Now, this isn't always a thing amongst the tech set, amongst people who work at computers and desks and in offices, because frankly, although the work we do is different, a lot of the culture around that type of work is a shared culture. There are meetings, there are commutes, there are technology issues, there are Slack conversations and in-office gossip. And this is the same no matter what job you happen to be working at, what company. And the same is true of the service industry, for instance. I remember trying to learn the ropes of this when I waited tables for a semester in college. The people who'd worked there longer than me, or who had worked at other restaurants, they knew the drill. They understood how to get the best tips, how to bus tables efficiently, how social relationships worked between the staff, how to work with the cooks so that you got your order first. Cultures and subcultures emerge how we spend our time and earn our living. This is even more apparent in work that shapes your very lifestyle. When you work in coal or steel or on a petroleum rig, your entire lifestyle, from your personal relationships to your habits to your family life, is shaped by that work. This is in part because that work is so location-dependent, and in part because it's often highly skill- and labor-intensive work. It's sometimes also quite dangerous work if you don't fall into the right rhythm. There's a sort of nostalgia inherent in work that harkens back to the early days of the United States. And these types of jobs and the trappings that go with them became a stand-in in some ways for American resolve and strength. The World War II era U.S. was awash in posters showing people getting to work, getting their hands dirty, turning wrenches, swinging hammers, producing raw materials and mechanical goods. These industries that are closer to the fundamentals and several steps away still from the often intangible creative class work that has come to dominate the high-earning American subculture are romanticized in the eyes of some people. They're relatively high-paying blue-collar jobs that can often be filled by people without college degrees. If you think about some of the culture war issues that are embroiling the U.S. right now, and much of the world, come to think of it, it shouldn't be terribly surprising that this type of work would become a stand-in for blue-collar culture in general. And so as a result of that stand-in quality, this industry doesn't only fill the need of politicians who want to wrangle voters in those regions, they're also representative of the people who work in them, or whose families have worked in them in blue-collar jobs in the past. Even when the work gives you black lung, and gave your father black lung, and gave his father black lung, you perhaps come to see the job and the culture around it as part of you, as part of your family culture and tradition. It's honest, hard work that you know how to do, and that you have come to love. Now that's not to say that many people in the coal industry wouldn't go into other work, were that an option. There have been programs in these regions to help coal miners in particular re-educate and retrain for other work that may turn out to be more relevant for the future, especially in towns that were almost completely reliant on coal for income, only to have their plant shut down with very little warning. Those programs, though, seem to be on the chopping block 
based on what Trump has said about the industry and the actions and opinions of the new EPA administrator, Scott Pruitt, his stance on the economy and climate change and the like is not terribly aligned with realigning away from coal. He has in the past, in fact, said that he would like to eliminate the very agency that he now runs. So I think, quote-unquote, inessential programs like those intended to retrain and re-educate and help coal miners land on their feet is probably not something that we'll see too much of in the coming years. So part of the pushback from coal miners is mercenary, it's for the money, and part of it's tribal. But there's another ingredient in this particular stew, and it's the subtle but potent spice, often called astroturfing. I'm fairly certain I've mentioned this term on the show before. It's a word used to describe fake grassroots movements, and especially those that are propped up by wealthy groups and individuals and made to look like a real populist surge, when in reality, few of the people who join the surge realize that they're part of something that was merely built and branded to seem grassroots, and in fact is funded by people who are anything but populist. One particularly successful example of this was the Tea Party conservative movement that happened during President Obama's tenure. But all political parties do this, as do many corporations. They create organizations that wear the colors and wave the flag of the working lower and middle class person. Their actions primarily, or in some cases only, benefit the plutocrats. I've spoken and written before about why loyalty is often bad for those who are loyal. And this is part of what I mean by that. It's true when it comes to brands and political parties, because then those entities are not forced to keep winning us over with good ideas and actions. But it's also often harmful because it means we become pawns in bigger games like this. Games that even when we win, we actually kind of lose. We're working in the coal mine, or we're not able to pay the rent because the coal industry has left town, or we're picketing those who might help us find new careers because we've been told that something grand has been taken from us. It's difficult to see the truth of many of these movements from the ground, especially when they grow seemingly out of nowhere around us in astroturf forest, preventing us from seeing the fake trees. So the coal industry is proving to be remarkably skilled at manipulating public perception and therefore manipulating market factors that are orienting around its product. So is regulation the answer, then? It's really hard to say. There have been a lot of situations in the past where regulation has proven to be necessary. The tobacco industry is a great example of this, as it was clearly a situation in which the industry itself could not be trusted to self-regulate. And every positive change related to tobacco and the horrible afflictions that it causes has been a result of regulation, despite these corporate behemoths dragging their feet the entire way to court, things actually got done once regulations were put into place. It's worth noting that the CPP, the Clean Power Plan, which was an Obama-era policy meant to curb the issues related to coal power and the coal industry, may be crippled or disappear completely under Trump and Pruitt's EPA. This measure was an attempt to regulate by allowing coal to keep operating but to slow its growth which is estimated to be 0.6% every year, if current trends continue and no regulations are put into place. It's projected that this plan would have reduced pollutants by 25%, 
would have saved the country $25 to $45 billion per year in climate and health-related benefits by 2030, and would save the average U.S. family $85 per year in energy bills. It would do this in part by incentivizing the creation and optimization of renewable energy sources in the country, and making it more difficult to build new coal power plants in the United States. The CPP was already in awkward political straits before Trump's inauguration, and had its enforcement halted and its case taken to the D.C. Circuit Court. The constitutionality of the policy has been questioned many times since then, though many states, both red and blue states, and nearly 400 companies, including Nestle, General Mills, eBay, have moved forward with the plan's tenets or publicly voiced their support of those tenets to their local politicians, regardless of whether or not it will actually ever go into full effect in a legal way. It's also worth noting that a huge part of the job loss since the year 2000 in manufacturing and extractive jobs like mining and lumberjacking is the result of a trade deficit that the U.S. has had since the mid-70s, the consequences of which only started to really hit us when overseas entities like China, began to really up their game in terms of exports. The U.S. Congress has the constitutional power to regulate trade, and though it's generally not popular when they do so, the World Trade Organization comes to mind. Sometimes such regulations are incredibly successful, as was the case with post-Great Depression actions that were taken, and those taken in the wake of both world wars. It's also possible for U.S. presidents to legislate more favorable trade balances, One thing that I do agree with Trump on, or at least his stated public opinion on, is that currency manipulation, which is regularly conducted by a few dozen different nations, but most effectively by China, is a significant contributor to our trade deficit. By artificially deflating their prices, China is able to, in effect, create an unofficial tax on U.S. goods coming into their country, while acting as an unofficial subsidy on all the goods they ship elsewhere. From an article published by the Economic Policy Institute, quote, The United States and other countries may legally refuse to sell government assets to currency manipulators because the World Trade Organization and International Monetary Fund do not require the United States to maintain free markets in capital flows, only in goods and services, end quote. So this could help us with that one currency manipulation problem, but it would also, at the same time, potentially hurt the perception that the U.S. has a free market economic system. There are options in how some of these issues can be tackled, but any regulation does come with trade-offs. Another source of manufacturing job loss is addressed in a recent study which shows that robots being used in manufacturing are to blame for the loss of about 670,000 jobs from 1990 to 2007, and that number is expected to increase dramatically in the coming years as the number of robots in this space are expected to quadruple. Regulation may help here as well. Bill Gates, for example, has proposed a robot tax, which could slow the adoption of robots and bring in money to help displaced workers find their feet as their careers disappear. But this, too, has been met with a very lukewarm reception, because regulation in general slows, by its very nature, some kinds of progress in the hopes of establishing balance, and those who are measuring their success by the metric that is being slowed cannot help but be put off by the idea of being hindered in the name of someone else's idea of value and success. Sometimes industries can be guilted and shamed into self-regulating, 
And we're seeing a lot of that right now, actually. And that's kind of how a free market is meant to work, though it's also clear that in many cases these public statements or implied agreements are not backed up by actual action. It's also quite clear that a lot of industries operate like the tobacco industry, manipulating politicians and governments and tax laws from behind the scenes, working to ensure that not only can they continue to operate how they please without punishment, but that no one can stop them, making them essentially above the laws that the rest of us adhere to. There are a lot of issues that I think can be solved using the free market method and making information known and allowing people to vote with their dollars. Because of the version of capitalism we adhere to, however, one that is steeped in cronyism and a heavily slanted playing field, I also think that there's a lot of room for well-produced policy and government mandate. It's not a balance that will be easy to establish, and any new law or policy will almost certainly piss someone off. But there are a lot of problems in the world that don't seem likely to be addressed in any other way. I mean, what corporation is going to decide that it's their responsibility to perpetuate the human race? Who is going to decide to give up profits, which they are legally required to pursue in favor of saving the human race, if in fact there is data that is undeniable that they are forced to accept that shows them that by continuing to seek profits in the way that they are, they will destroy the planet. I've spoken before on this show about the issues that some very smart people are worrying about when it comes to artificial intelligence, including the concern that these kinds of thinking but emotionless, empathyless machines might, without maliciousness or cruel intent, destroy us all, simply because in doing so, they are also optimally fulfilling their prime directive. They're maybe producing the most paperclips at the most efficient rate and in the most effective way. And just as a byproduct of doing that, they also happen to turn all matter in the universe into paperclips. I think that it's worth remembering that our systems are technologies. They are a theory that's put into practice, which in turn helps us become more effective. They help us do things better. And our companies, our corporations, are non-tangible manifestations of that technology. They are systems. And just like AIs, these systems can be immensely valuable in some ways, and they can help us do really cool things and achieve immense levels of accomplishment that could not have been dreamed of if we were operating as individuals or as small tribes, or even as certain types of societies. But these systems are also prone to many of the same downsides as artificial intelligences, as robot brains. A person working as part of a corporation is just one node, one cog, one part of a larger whole. And as a result, it's very easy for them to dismiss any claims of wrongdoing. Because, hey, they're not doing anything wrong. They're just filing paperwork, you know? They're helping with HR. They're just building the brand. They're working at the desk, mining coal. They're not to blame. But when you look at the totality of their efforts, combined with all the other people in that company, it adds up to something bigger and potentially immensely harmful. None of the individual nodes, the individual workers, are likely to take the blame, or even necessarily feel that they should. But their work contributes to that bigger, perhaps ultimately, human race-killing effort. And this is partially a cultural issue, one that allows us to say it's just business. When we do something horrible in the name of earning a paycheck, as if our morals are left at the door as soon as we walk into the office. 
but it's partially an extension of the chief and tribe mentality as well that allows us to assuage ourselves of guilt or responsibility because we're being paid to work, not to think about the moral implications of that work. There's someone higher up who is paid to take that responsibility. The trouble is that even when you go high up to the tippy top of many of these companies, you don't have one person steering the ship. You have a committee, and each member of that committee is capable of relegating the mental burden to someone else. Or in some cases, they can simply remind themselves that it's their actual legal responsibility to earn as much money as possible, whatever the consequences. Now, it may be that novel organizational methods could help us with this. There are entities called B corporations, for instance, that allow that corporation to essentially say, yes, we are a for-profit entity, but we are also dedicated to adhering to certain social and environmental ethical standards as part of our reason for existing. There's potential that organizational systems like this could allow companies to be big, powerful creatures that are immensely capable without also becoming part of the problem, that could be part of big picture solutions instead, as opposed to what happens now where any good that comes from these companies quite typically is really just part of a well-spun effort to make tax-deductible donations and grants, which helps their bottom line while also allowing them to seem beneficent. If we can come up with ways to essentially benefit from both of these things, to allow these big companies that can do great big things, to apply those efforts in a lot of very beneficial directions, rather than only applying themselves to the earning of money, production, and generation of capital. This, in a lot of ways, I think, would help us achieve a purer version of capitalism than we have today. And it would allow us to solve a whole lot more problems, rather than requiring the creation of so many governmental agencies and policies and legislations just to ensure that we're not, you know, killing ourselves as a byproduct of our other efforts. But whatever we end up doing, hopefully we can make some positive changes before we fall prey to a geological period ending event and end up as just more fossil fuels to be burned in some future Earth-based species power plant. To view the show notes for this episode and every episode, you can pop on by to letsnotethings.com. While there, you can also sign up for the weekly newsletter that contains a collection of links to interesting things. And you can check out the contribute page, which lists an array of ways that you can help support the show. Any and all efforts in that regard are very much appreciated. Thank you so much. You guys are what makes this show possible. Another great way to help support the show is to check out my other work. I have written a bunch of books. I'm an author by trade. If you go to colin.io, you can find a list of those books. And I have a new book that's out called Becoming Who We Need to Be, that if you enjoy this show, chances are you will also enjoy that book in the format of it. It's an essay collection that explores the relationship between individual development and societal development and the type of growth that will need to take place for us to be capable of facing the challenges that are in our futures. That's Becoming Who We Need to Be. You can find it on Amazon and Kobo and iBooks and Google Play. You can get it at your local indie bookstore. You can request it at your library if it's not already there. In all of these cases, it helps me continue to produce this type of work and my book work as well. So thank you very much for checking it out. And if you enjoy it, please consider leaving a review. This episode was sponsored by Audible. 
If you go to audibletrial.com slash LKT, you will receive a free 30-day trial of Audible and a free audiobook of your choice. And that includes the aforementioned Becoming Who We Need to Be or my other audiobooks that are on the service. But you can also check out a piece of fiction that I want to recommend to you today entitled Ancillary Justice by Anne Leckie. This is the first book of a trilogy. It is speculative science fiction set thousands of years in the future in a universe in which massive artificial intelligences connect with humans via implants. And the result of this relationship is that these AIs use the humans to a large degree as their sensory organs and their hands in the real world. And in some cases, these humans that are being used are enemy combatants that are essentially drained of their own life and become fully possessed by this software. And in other cases, it's still fully complete conscious human beings who have these implants that then obey the machines and their directives, because by operating as part of a larger whole, as a unit, as essentially a bunch of arms for a larger conscious entity, they're able to accomplish a whole lot more than enemy combatants, for example, that do not operate as like a swarm intelligence that are not connected and guided by AIs. And there's a lot more to it than that, including a rich collection of spacefaring cultures that interact on a massive scale in a time period where social norms have changed to a large degree. Gender has ceased to be an identifying characteristic for most people, for example, which makes the descriptions of these cultures and the storylines that take place within them quite interesting. And the main character is an artificial intelligence whose main ship, its main hub, was destroyed alongside all of her other ancillaries, her possessed humans that she controlled, except for the one that she now occupies. And so her entire intelligence, or part of it at least, is crammed inside just one human body. And the story is essentially her going out and seeking revenge against whoever it was that destroyed most of her consciousness. There was a review of this book and the other books in the series that was published in Locus magazine that I think sums up my opinion of it pretty well. Quote, this is not entry-level science fiction, and its payoff is correspondingly greater because of that. End quote. So that's Ancillary Justice by Anne Leckie. You can pick that up at your local library, your local indie bookstore, get it on your Kindle, your Kobo, and you can also, if you are so inclined, get it for free on Audible by going to audibletrial.com LKT. And the other sponsor today is HostGator, the hosting company that I use to host all of my websites and online properties. If you go to hostgator.com LKT, you will receive a substantial discount on their already excellent prices. HostGator.com LKT. As I mentioned, you can find out more about the show by going to letsnotethings.com. You can learn more about me and my work at colin.io, and you can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com. You can find me pretty much everywhere on the internet at Colin is my name. Feel free to say hello. Thank you so much for listening. I am Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week.